This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back for a second series of Gosh Pods Goes Green. In this series, which is being launched on Clean Air Day on the 15th of June, we are focusing on the important issue of air pollution. Over the next eight weeks, we will explore the impact of air quality on our health, factors contributing to air pollution, and start to think about what we can do as individuals and as healthcare professionals to improve our air quality and advocate for change. In this opening episode, two consultants at Great Ormond Street, Dr Mark Hayden and Dr Emma Stockton, talk about exactly why healthcare professionals should be concerned about air quality. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello, my name's Emma Stockton. I'm an anaesthetic consultant at Great Ormond Street Hospital, and I'm going to be the host today talking to Dr Mark Hayden about air pollution and sustainability. So, Mark. Hello, my name's Mark Hayden. I'm a consultant in paediatric intensive care at Great Ormond Street. Brilliant. And I know you've got a lifelong interest in sustainability, which has intensified more in recent times. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Lifelong? I don't know if I've had a lifelong, and I think that's part of my problem, that I haven't had a lifelong interest in sustainability. I've had a lifelong interest in nature and animals and all of those sorts of things, but I didn't really come to the topic of sustainability until way too late, until you know, most of my lifetime had been spent failing to advocate for the climate and nature crisis that we're very clearly in. So I guess I'm catching up. I'm trying to make up for lost time. Okay, that's so that's really interesting. What what made you sort of get interested? Because I know you used to live in Australia, which I don't associate with being particularly forward thinking on environmental things, but obviously has beautiful nature. And then you moved to the UK about or re-moved to the UK, what? Must be best part of 10 years, years ago. ago. So, yeah, tell me what has got you interested. That's a good point. I mean, Australia was, you know, pretty well one of the bad boys for a long time. But actually, I think in some ways is overtaken the UK, at least on some of the, the politics and the way they're talking about it now. And perhaps the UK is backsliding. But yes, you're right. I think the UK certainly was leading the world for quite some time on a lot of the sustainability stuff. I suppose what really got me involved in advocacy and sustainability was the Extinction Rebellion in the 2018, wasn't it? And that sort of really got me thinking about what should I be doing about this problem? Should I be smashing bank windows? Should I be gluing myself to the road? Those sorts of things. And I, I considered it, but I talked to the kids, my kids, who after all are the ones who are going to have to deal with these problems. And they said, no, daddy, we like the money coming in. Don't do that. That would just be performative. And I also thought, well, actually, is that useful for me to do? Is that the only thing I can do? Am I using my skills and resources appropriately? And I felt perhaps not. I felt perhaps with my knowledge and the place I work and the opportunities I have, I felt perhaps I could do more, at least at this point in my life and career. So I guess that sort of really got it started around sustainability. Um, And also, gosh, was starting to show some interest and around about that time or soon after we declared a climate health emergency at Great Ormond Street and I think that got the ball rolling so that's probably what got the ball rolling in the sort of general sustainability active travel sense of the word. And so that's really interesting and 
I guess we've we've sort of bonded a little bit over our similar sort of well, you're more activist than me, but I have similar interest in sort of the environment. I think probably I do a less good job of promoting it. Tell me about how it feels being a paediatrician and and I guess an intensivist and the sort of link between sustainability and health. And I, I'm thinking the case that I think we all know about, which is the Ella Kissy Deborah case, is very, very sad and has, has really highlighted this for the wider population. But could you just tell us a little bit about that for people that don't know and how you think as a paediatrician or as a doctor, we have a role in the whole movement of air pollution and sustainability? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess from a personal perspective, and I guess it's different for everybody how they view these things. As an intensivist, I view my job as sort of important, very important to the children I actually look after, very important to their parents, but also very expensive, very resource utilizing and not really doing broad good to large numbers of children. And I suppose that gave me a degree of moral distress. You know, I had all of these opportunities and I had a great job, but I wasn't really, you know, helping the, the large number of children that live in the world. And also, I think as a pediatrician, the intergenerational justice element caused me distress. You know, the fact that my generation or the generation before the children that are my children or the children I'm caring for really ruined the world for them. So I felt a lot of responsibility there. And then I suppose finally, from a professional perspective, our college, the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, makes it very clear that this is our job. You know, it's our job to behave responsibly from a sustainability point of view and also to speak up for children and for child health. And it makes it very clear that that's the case. So I wouldn't be doing my professional job if I wasn't doing that. And then from the Ella Kissy Deborah story, really that came around at the time when I was wanting to speak out more and looking for an opportunity to follow the instructions of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health to speak up for the safety of children. I've got an Ella too. My daughter's called Ella, so that had a, an additional personal effect. And it was really what the coroner said when he said that doctors and nurses who'd looked after Ella, which was at multiple hospitals, but it did include Great Ormond Street, I never, I never met her or her mother, had failed to tell her mother of the risks, had failed to adequately advise her mother how the air pollution around where she lived, which is near the South Circular, was impacting on her asthma. And Rosamond, Ella's mum, fought for a, a second inquest. And at that second inquest, the coroner placed air pollution as a cause of death on Ella's death certificate for the first time, as far as I know, anywhere in the world. And I don't think it's happened since, which is a bit crazy considering that the WHO data says that 7 million people die every year from air pollution and only one has it on their death certificate. But that's the case. So it was really the death certificate and the inquest and the instruction from the coroner to prevent future death by speaking about air pollution that has had the biggest impact on me. No, that's really interesting. And from what I've heard, Ella Kersi Deborah's mother's quite an amazing woman, a real force of nature. She is a force yeah. of nature. I think that's, that's a what I've heard. And I guess, so following on from that, Ben, Mark, what do you think the barriers are for other clinicians in 
sort of calling this out and advocating for children, but I guess not just exclusively for children in their work. Because I must say, I don't probably do as much as I could and should in my day-to-day life as a doctor. I do it to my colleagues who I moan about if they drive to work. I do it to all my sort of friends and family, but I don't probably advocate very effectively to my patients and their families. And have you got any thoughts about how I could or how other people could? Well, we could talk about it with the families and our patients, but most of the time it's not going to be the most appropriate. And, you know, partly from the job I do, but also I don't think I'm an expert in the field. I wasn't trained on it in medical school. Nobody would have been trained on it in medical school apart from perhaps in the last few years of medical students coming out. And it really wasn't. We weren't educated on it. We didn't know how to talk to patients about it. That's still evolving, but it's started to improve. And I think we need a lot of resources, healthcare providers to say, look, this is a problem and we need to do something about it. And I know that a lot of them are much more expert than I am, say the respiratory team, and also a lot of them are much better at education than I am. So it's about developing resources, linking them in, in a way that sort of works for clinicians, providing the training that clinicians need to have those conversations. I'm working with Nicola Wilson, who's one of my most educated, who you'll know and love very well. And she's trying to get together a simulation of a doctor talking to a patient, you know, about air pollution to support clinicians in doing something that they haven't been trained and perhaps aren't comfortable doing. I think one of the big barriers is the whole climate crisis has been deliberately politicised. You know, there's nothing innately political about the climate crisis. It was a decision made, maybe in the 80s or the 90s, and it was associated with a particular political view or political party, particularly in the US, obviously. And you know that there was a lot of money flowing around out of the oil industry. They knew the truth about climate change, and they suppressed it, and they used the money to turn it into a political argument. And that was very effective. Did that plus the sort of personal blame and type approach around personal carbon footprint, where, you know, it's all of our problems and if we're not recycling enough, you know, that's the problem, was very effective in stopping people talking about this sort of thing. And it obviously impacted on, rightly, were uncomfortable putting their head above the parapet and talking about those sort of things. And that still goes on to a degree. But, you know, I think the more we as a hospital or the more I as an individual and you as an individual and the Royal College of Paediatric and Child Health And the NHS say, actually, no, climate change isn't a political issue. Air pollution isn't innately a political issue. They're a health issue. The more we emphasise the health issue of it, the more comfortable our colleagues are going to be to talk about those things. So I think it's not about blaming the individuals for not talking about it. I don't think the coroner did that. He said that the organisations that do training need to do better and they need to train doctors and nurses how to talk to patients about it and Part of that is understanding this isn't about politics. This isn't about which newspaper you read. This is about telling the truth about a highly toxic substance that's in the air that we can get rid of. We know how to get rid of it. It's not difficult, but there's politics now strongly associated with it and people don't really want to raise their heads. So I suppose that's part of the solution, just naming that as it is. That is a really very useful synopsis. And I I guess I hadn't thought of it, the political side of it, as being a barrier to speaking to people, but I guess subconsciously is. 
you're really, really right that I do love Nicola Wilson. I think she's absolutely amazing. Yeah. And and I wondered, just having talked to her very recently, whether you think that as our patients become more aware of this, and you know, my children are being taught about air pollution and are much more clued up on the environment than I was at their age. It seems to be like on the actual mainstream syllabus now. Do you think that we'll see a demand from our patients that will change practice as well? And have you have you seen that at all? Or? I think we definitely will. There's a project which maybe we'll talk about later, but I believe later in the podcast series, Johanna Anderson, who actually is the critical person for that, may be talking about it in more detail, where we're bringing the air quality data into our electronic patient record and showing it to clinicians alongside some of the educational resources, which I was just sort of talking about. And as part of that, we did a very basic survey of some staff and patients. And one of the interesting numbers that came out of that was that like only 15% of staff have either ever talked to patients or would be comfortable talking to patients about this sort of thing. But 75% of parents or patients who filled in the questionnaire would like some information about it. It's not they necessarily want somebody to talk to them about it, but they want more information. So I think you're right. I think actually it's going to be questions coming from families that we can't answer as much as as opening a new topic of conversation. And I think that will help clinicians because one of the things that people have said to me that they struggle with when having a conversation with a family is there's so little that a family can actually do about air pollution themselves. You know, you can stay in the house when the air pollution is really bad. Well, you know, that's not that easy to do necessarily. So there's only limited things that people can do themselves. And that makes clinicians uncomfortable because they're telling people about a problem, but then what do they expect to do about it? Now, obviously, from my perspective, I think the important thing is that we talk truth to power, whether that's government, local government or national government or whoever has the capacity to change the environment that we live in, which isn't necessarily that easy from individual perspectives, with the exception of a few things like not burning wood burning stoves when you actually have a perfectly warm house, which some people do, not everybody does, but some people do. You know, there's actually not that many things that you can just do saying, I'm going to stop causing pollution and be able to do it, especially depending on how many resources you have. So I think it will start coming from people as it's more talked about nationally. No, that's that's very interesting. Another thing that I'm kind of interested in, and I wonder if you could tell us a bit about is health inequalities. And I I know that that health inequalities affect, you know, everything from your outcomes from trauma, cardiac disease, all those things. And I wondered if there's a link between air pollution and health inequality. And I wondered if you could also maybe tell us what the effects of air pollution are on children. My daughter the other day was saying, you know, mummy, everyone, because it's children are smaller and at exhaust pipe level, they're much more affected by air pollution than bigger people. Um, She's Yeah, and we then had a little talk on about how, you know, it's the same thing, you're hit at bumper high. That's why toddlers are particularly prone to head injuries from cars. And I guess, yeah, what what could you tell us about that? Now you asked me two questions. I've got to remember what the first question is now. It's what about, I guess, health inequalities. In health inequalities, yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to, the first thing I was going to say about health inequalities is I don't think I'm really a very good expert to talk about that. 
you know, there's a lot of people who've really studied that in a lot more detail. So my knowledge is superficial, but I'll try and answer the question. You know, you want someone like Michael Marmot or many of the other people who've really looked into those sorts of things. I guess the way I think about it are the sort of social and environmental determinants of health and air pollution is one of those determinants, which I guess I know most about in the long list of them. And I certainly know that worldwide, if we're talking about worldwide and air pollution, that there's a lot of inequality in indoor air pollution, which I'm much less expert about, but that particularly affects children and women much more because indoor air pollution internationally is generally created by cooking. You know, to a degree that's created by gas hobs, which obviously we could get rid of in the UK, but worldwide it's often created by, you know, charcoal or wood burning inside the house. So there's a lot of evidence around inequalities with regard to indoor air pollution. When it comes to outdoor air pollution, it's much more about where you live. And some of the causes of outdoor air pollution, certainly in the US and to a degree in the UK, are from things like incinerators or industrial processes, those sorts of things. There's good evidence, particularly from the US and and also from the UK, that living near large industrial complexes because of the air pollution and the other forms of pollution they cause significantly affects people in those areas. And in general, people who live in those areas are poorer or of a different ethnicity to the people who live well away from those things. I guess in the UK, the particular thing is obviously the poorer you are, at least in London, in general, the worse air pollution you're going to have because you're going to live nearer big roads. Although there are exceptions. Westminster has some of the worst air pollution in the UK. There are some very poor people in Westminster, but there are also some very, very rich people and also people who are members of parliament who could do something about it. And air pollution has a direct and immediate effect on your mental capacity. So perhaps that's part of our problem. And what was your second question, Emma? I think it kind of actually ties into that. So it was about the actual sort of physical effects of air pollution on health. I mean, that's a massive question and we, we probably don't have time to cover that. As far as I can work out, it causes just about anything and just about everything. I'm surprised every day that I see a new paper coming out showing the impact of air pollution on a new disease that I was going, how is that even possible? I mean, we've known it has a huge impact on mortality and morbidity. In the paediatric area, I guess the major impacts are on the baby in the womb or on the fetus in the womb. You know, there's significant data suggesting that a large proportion of premature deliveries are related to air pollution. And in fact, there was a recent paper that looked Uh, at fetuses and actually looked inside their brains and looked inside their livers. I mean, you could see black dust particles down the microscope in babies even before they're born. And obviously that shows you a very clear mechanism of action. So a lot of the impacts are on children before they're born. And then obviously if you're born prematurely and you're born with poor lungs, that has all sorts of other ongoing effects on you. So that's one of the big impacts in paediatrics. And the other one that most people know about is asthma and certainly NO2, which is one of the air pollutants, particularly that's one that comes from diesel exhausts and is particularly related to how close you are to a main road. That one clearly causes asthma exacerbations and that was probably the pollutant that led 
to Ella's repeated episodes of severe asthma and eventually le- led to her death. So there's good evidence around that. And there's good evidence that as that gets worse, you get many more children and adults being admitted to hospital with asthma. And then there's some sort of really surprising, weird, esoteric ones, which, you know, most people wouldn't know about. But to me, in my job, you know, really surprises me. I remember speaking to one of our lung transplant physicians at Great Alden Street, who obviously we work with closely as often the patients come through the ICU afterwards. And I was really surprised to hear that they could tell whether a donor's lungs came from a major city because the color of the outside of the lungs, which they always check prior to transplantation is different from people who come in the countryside. And that really shocked me that you could get those sorts of visual cues. Hopefully now that we have this postcode data, it might be possible for someone in that field to do some research on whether where your postcode is impacts on the survival of those lungs. But even more interestingly, it was when they pointed out to me that there was a study from Belgium 15 odd years ago now that showed the chances of dying after having a lung transplant were two to four times higher for people who lived close to a major road than those who lived further away. So even the postcode lottery of air pollution has an impact on rare and unusual diseases, some of the ones that we treat at Great Ormond Street. And that's really shocking to me. There's recent evidence that an acute spike in some types of pollution, PM 2.5 in this case, within two hours leads to an increased number of cardiac arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter and SVT. There are all sorts of diseases that I see all the time, but within two hours of a spike, you get multiple admissions to hospital in adults and children with that. So the amount of data is massive. And I often find those sorts of odd stories get people's attention more than quoting 7 million people die each year from air pollution or 34,000 people in the UK die each year from air pollution. I often find those figures sort of Sometimes the more people who die makes it less meaningful to people. I think it's often telling them stories about either somebody they know or a disease they've heard about that gets their attention and go, actually, maybe there is something in this. So that's my slightly esoteric view of how air pollution affects people. But again, there are people who are much more expert than me. That's a really, really interesting run through, actually, Mark. And I, you say you're not expert, but you seem very expert to me. And that's very interesting about the air spikes and the cardiac dysrhythmias, because that seems to be sort of a tangible thing. So that's really, really interesting. We're so much more preventable. And I think that's real, the key, the key thing about air pollution. It's completely preventable. Well, not entirely. You know, some pollution comes from dust from the Sahara. There's probably nothing you can do about that. But a lot of air pollution, we can just turn that off and we can dramatically improve people's health. This feels to me that it's very akin to smoking. And as doctors, we should be advocating with every patient to encourage them to not smoke, which I think is something that most doctors do feel comfortable doing. Maybe haven't always, but probably do now. And similarly to parents of children telling them not to smoke. And it it feels like this could have a huge, probably bigger health impact almost on the population, but it's not individuals who are causing the problem that are the ones we're trying to target, is it? So it's how you... 
I think you're right. And like, I mean, just remember, we we dropped the ball pretty impressively with smoking, didn't we? Lots of doctors yeah. smoke. They were having yeah. to be funded by the advertising industry, yeah. by the tobacco industry, and we did nothing about it for too many years. So we yeah. were definitely complicit in that. Maybe to a degree, we're being a bit complicit in vaping at the moment with children. You know, it doesn't cause the same things, but, you know, we're going down the same line. But I think I think that narrative around doctors and nurses and health professionals have a responsibility to speak up about problems outside of their immediate area of expertise, you know, if they're affecting people broadly, is very much the case here. And I think we should, as doctors and nurses, be doing whatever we can to reduce air pollution. Now, speaking to our patients is part of that, but actually the people we really need to be speaking to are the local government politicians, the national government politicians, the newspapers maybe who are running stories about all of the reasons we shouldn't do something about air pollution and, you know, aren't actually putting the best interests of children first, but are putting the best interests of other organisations first. So I think really that's a role for healthcare providers, hospitals, the NHS to speak out about those sorts of things. And while maybe that's a public health type of job, there aren't many public health clinicians and most of the time you don't hear about them on the news unless there's a COVID pandemic or something like that. And I think it's a job for all of us. It's a job for everybody in the NHS to talk about this, to support people who are doing the right thing and to support the initiatives that are making air quality better. And there's lots and lots of different ways to do that. It's not a political issue. It's our job. That is really brilliant. And so so I'm trying to think of what I might do differently tomorrow when I go to work. Don't, I'm, like you, don't like your wood burning stove. <laughs> I don't have one. So you've got one one wish for tomorrow. What could we do better? Well, within Great Ulm Street, everybody could look at the children that they're seeing today's air pollution that's displayed in the chart and follow some of the resources and educate ourselves more about it. And we all need to learn more, including me. And then potentially. Okay, can you just tell me where that is in the chart in Great Ormond Street, Mark, so I can go well, and do it, that? It's all over the place in the chart. It's in the storyboard, which is visible on every patient, but actually all of your patient lists, you can easily add a column that shows the PM2.5 and the NO2. So you could see, you could say, okay, I've got five cases tomorrow, and you could see what their air pollution levels were. So I'd suggest that everybody has a look at that first, not necessarily talk to the patient about it, but that's the place to start. And then maybe choose one and write to their MP and say, I have a patient who lives in your area and the pollution is really bad. Could you do something about it? I think that's a very powerful thing to do as part of your pre-op assessment. And I am going to do that. I may come for a personalized tutorial with you on how to find it out. But I actually, I love the idea of being able to look ahead and then correlate it if they've got a cough or not. That would be a really powerful thing, right? You can definitely do it. I've even written you a letter that's sort of, you can edit, but you can basically do that and you, you can organise that and send it off. It's definitely something you can do tomorrow. No, that's brilliant. And what about if you could do something in the wider NHS tomorrow? What would that be? Maybe for places that don't have Epic yet, the unfortunate ones. Hmm. Well, I think from the wider NHS, there's still the advocacy. You don't need... You know, you can look up that information. We can all be advocating for our patients. We can all be writing to MPs and politicians and, and those sorts of things and saying, this is a health problem. We want you to do something about it and talking to the newspapers, et cetera, et cetera, when something like that comes up. But I think one thing the NHS needs to do is stop 
if you look at Chris Whitty, his CMO report 2022, the two things he said to the NHS was one, educate yourself about this type of stuff and talk to your patients. And two, stop producing so much pollution yourself. So I think from the wider NHS, we just shouldn't be paying for deliveries that come in diesel vehicles. We should get rid of all of our diesel ambulances and change them to electric. We have to have ambulances, probably true. We need to close down our combined heat and power generators, and we need to change to different ways of heating our hospitals. And so I think the two things we should do as, an, as a health organization is educate ourselves and talk to our patients and stop causing pollution ourselves, because we produce 7% of CO2, and I imagine we produce at least 7% of pollution. So that's just putting more patients in our emergency departments. That doesn't make sense. We need to prevent ill health first. Brilliant. Thank you. So we've got a personal point about what we can all do, and then also a wider point about how we can advocate within our organisation. That was really, really interesting to chat to you. I don't often get like that much time where you're actually allowed to talk all the time. So that is very good. You always let me talk. <laughs> well, within, you know, only when you put your hand up normally, but this has been, That's true. been very meeting, good. I have to put my hand up. You're quite right. <laughs> yeah. This has been super lovely and I've enjoyed it a lot. And me. Thank yeah. you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gosh Pod Goes Green. We hope you can join us again next week for episode two, where we're joined by Professor Sir Stephen Holgate, the founder of the Committee of the Medical Effects on Air Pollution and Special Advisor on Air Quality to the Royal College of Physicians. The team at the Gosh Learning Academy would love to get your feedback on the episode, as well as hear your suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on Gosh Pods. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. Thanks for listening to Gosh Pods and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.